This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode 173. Let's do this. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the show. This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Blanc. Really excited that you're here to learn about apartment building investing, the best way to become financially free with real estate. Today on the show, I have Adam the Brit. You may not know him, but he's maintained a very low profile. He's been around for a long time, has invested in, in Asia and Europe and, and the U.S., and I was able to hang out with him at some of our inner circle meetings and got to know him a little better. Quiet guy, but man, he's an entrepreneur through and through. He's done a bunch of stuff. It seems like he's all over the place. He's flipped some houses. He's done some ground construction, apartment buildings, retail, and it seems like haphazard. But really what it is, is he's very intentional about that. And what he argues is that you need to really work on multiple income streams. Now, we talk about multifamily as kind of the single asset class, and there's a lot of value to be had in focusing on one thing. The other extreme of that spectrum is shiny object titus, where you're running around different objects. And on the surface, it seems like Adam is affected by this, but he's not. And we drill into those aspects. Why is it that he chose certain asset classes? What was he trying to achieve? How did he try to achieve it? And he gets into multifamily, gets out of multifamily, then gets back into it, but maybe in a different way for a different reason. So super interesting story. I was love jamming with, with Adam because he's so interesting. He's done so many different things. He's just a funny guy, you know, and he's got a cool British accent. So I think you're really, really going to enjoy listening to Adam here on the show. Probably first time you've heard him speak. Also, you know what? I really enjoy you guys saying hello on Instagram. My, the handle is the Michael Blanc, of course. And what I really enjoy is when I say, hey, let me know where you are when you listen to this podcast. So I get people like taking a picture of their car, you know, episode 168, you know, or whatever, or they're at the gym. So, you know, hit me up on Instagram. I love seeing that stuff. Take a quick snapshot of where you are when you listen to this podcast. And uh, also on Facebook, right? So we're putting a lot of content that not, that's not going out over email or blog. I'm checking in quite a bit. And we have this cool new Facebook group called Apartment Investor Network. So just Google Apartment Investor Network. That is us. There's several thousand people in there. And we have a lot of our mentors and advisors in there. So it's a great way to connect and ask questions as well. So with that, let's get right into this cool interview with Adam the Brit. Here we go. Adam the Brit, welcome very much to the show today. Thank you, Michael. I'm excited to be here. It's uh, a great day in sunny California. And uh, I'm excited to talk about real estate, my favorite topic. Yeah, I'm really excited that you're here because you're uh, one of our more seasoned guests, shall we say. You've been through, uh, you've Is been doing this for, for old. <laughs> <laughs> what I love about it is that you've been around the block a little while. You've seen a few market cycles and you've been through various different asset classes. You just give a whole new perspective on the whole thing. You know, some, some of us who've been doing this for a long time have actually been doing it a very long time at all. And so I'm really, I'm just really um, excited to jump into this thing. Adam, you could probably speak for two hours on your history, but give us a little background on yourself, maybe back in the old days, how you got started and some of the shenanigans you've done. And then we're going to go deep on some of these things because some of the things I know you've done are really interesting. Okay, cool. Well, um, I actually started my real estate career in, uh, in the Netherlands, which was where I was living at the time. I was lucky to have an operating business that was throwing off a lot of excess capital. And uh, I decided I'd get into the house flipping game on the side. So uh, I bought a couple of houses, uh, flipped them, and then started investing in some office warehouse buildings. 
And at the time in the Netherlands, uh, you could actually get 0% down debt from banks. So it was, it was a great time. Building, bought another building and uh, rented it out. And um, everything was tickety-boo. And the guys used to come every month and pay in cash, which I thought was kind of interesting. And um, one day I rolled up and uh, there's a parking lot full of cops and dogs and people with guns and all kinds of stuff. And I'm like, oh, what's going on? And uh, it turns out they were uh, producing uh, one of Holland's uh, best exports, methamphetamines, uh, from there, uh, which was not ideal. That was, I guess, my earliest sort of uh, real estate uh, investing. And I moved to the States uh, in 2001. Um, and that's really when I started to invest in, in, in real estate in a, in a bigger way. And what did you do when you came here to the States to start investing in a bigger way? What did that mean for you? Well, I love the idea of passive income. And I've been sort of, I guess, searching for confirmation that this passive income kind of concept was feasible and would work. And like many people out there, I guess, I stumbled across Rich Dad, Poor Dad, probably one of the earlier print editions. And um, I read that book from cover to cover in like a couple of hours. I remember exactly where I was when I read it. And I'm like, man, that just really confirms all of the things I've been thinking of. When we moved to Houston at the time, my first acquisition was a 16-unit apartment building. Um, I bought that probably within three months of landing in the US. Went on from there, we bought uh, over the course of a couple of years, I think we bought about eight multifamily buildings uh, inside the loop uh, in Houston in the Montrose area and got it up to about 150 units at the time. Why did you decide to go into multifamily at the time? And did you self-fund this thing? So, yeah, let's do the first one. Why did you decide to do multifamily? And I'm curious to see what you did to get started. I guess I kind of, and we'll delve more into my aha moment as to why I chose to still invest in multifamily, but not keep that as my longer term holds. But the reason I got into it, I guess is the same reason as most people get into it is because I was looking for scalability over single family homes. So I never really kind of got into the single family home to rent a market or business. And I saw that as being scalable. And I guess I kind of considered retail or, you know, even though I'd had a couple of office warehouse buildings, it still seemed more complicated to me. So it just seemed like the, the course of least resistance. And, you know, there are definitely, there's probably more, you know, affordable, smaller deals, at least at the time, uh, than there maybe was, uh, you know, in the commercial space. Now, how were you funding these things aside from debt? Uh, were you self-funding these on the equity side? Did you, were you already raising money at the time? At the time, I had a semiconductor trading company, and uh, that was part of the reason that we moved to the States. Uh, I had a company in, uh, in Asia, a company in the Netherlands, and needed an office here. So I came to the US to open up the uh, American office of that company. But it was effectively a kind of a brokerage buying selling. It didn't necessarily require a lot of capital. And so the money that I made from the operating business, I decided I'd invest in you know, passive uh, reoccurring income vehicles, i.e. real estate. So uh, it was self-funded um, and I was lucky enough to be going through. This was sort of just on the, at the time that the internet was exploding. Uh, there are various web platforms to be able to sell products all over the world. Uh, and we also just had, if you remember back, some of your viewers may be, uh, may be young enough to remember the year 2000 bug when we thought the world was going to end, all the computers were going to reset. Uh, and of course, there was this huge demand for semiconductors uh, in the build up to that. So uh, uh, we kind of rode that, that, that wave. It's, you know, like anything in life, it's about timing. 
Hey, give us some perspective on U.S. real estate. The reason I ask is when I spoke in Dubai last last year, I made certain assumptions about real estate in general. Like, for example, you can get a loan on real estate, uh, that the real estate would cash flow, that there are certain tax benefits. And I discovered that actually that's not the case uh, everywhere in the world, very few parts in the world. What is real estate investing? I know you've been in Asia and, and, and Europe. What is your perspective on how the U.S. real estate market is different or better or worse than other parts of the world? I think the best thing about the US is that, you know, and it sounds kind of cliche, but, you know, everything is possible here, right? You, you've kind of got, if you want to spend a million dollars a door on an apartment, you probably can in parts of the US. If you want to spend, maybe today, it's kind of, it's hard to say, but, you know, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a door, you can probably find that too. So it's kind of, you know, whatever your budget, whatever your pocketbook, you can find real estate that kind of suits and typically you'll find debt to go with it. And so it's kind of a great country for, you know, beginners, uh, people that, you know, have a little money, have a little equity. And it's a great place if you've got, you know, obviously a lot of money as well. And the tax treatment of real estate here is favorable compared to some countries and similar compared to others. So I, I think that, um, you know, that's the main thing is that it, it, you know, it's a lot more affordable and the barriers to entry are lower. And, you know, case in point, you know, I came to this country and within three months, you know, I'd already bought my first deal with, you know, no credit effectively and, you know, no history here and, and nothing. So, you know, and it was through a local bank gave me a, you know, a loan. I, I don't remember the LTV, but it was, it was probably a 80% uh, LTV at the time. Uh, maybe banks are a little easier back then. But, you know, that, that I'm kind of walking proof that it's possible to come here in the US and buy property you know, almost immediately without, you know, having that, uh, that track record. Yeah, which may be difficult to do in other parts of the world. Now, you said you got to about 150 multifamily units, and then you said you implied that you stopped. Why yes. did you stop? Uh, and uh, first of all, and then what did you start doing? So, you know, I've always had, you know, a passive income stream from real estate, or at least for the last 20 plus years, and then an operating income stream from operating business. And so the real estate was meant to be passive. And uh, we had a bunch of different buildings, but they were all within a, a mile or two of one another. Uh, so they were all fairly close. And uh, we hired a manager to uh, to manage those properties remotely. And none of them were really big enough. I think the biggest uh, building we had was 28 units. Uh, none of them were big enough to support an on-site manager. So we had a, a sort of a floating manager. My wife and I uh, had lived in Australia. We went to Australia for six weeks in the summer. And after about four weeks, we couldn't track down the manager. And anyhow, cut a long story short, we found her in the state mental institution. Uh, and it turned out that uh, she had been skimming and stealing uh, money from us for a while. And she ended up spending 18 months in the state penitentiary. So we decided that we wanted to find something that was true or had a lot more passive components that would allow us to travel, allow us to scale and had more known variables. I think the issue that we had back then, and to a certain extent, I think still exists today is that, especially in the C-class market, it's a little bit of a revolving door with regards to tenants coming and going. You know, your balance sheet is obviously dependent on all of the expenses that you can't pass back to a tenant, taxes, insurance, management fees, repairs, etc. And um, we realized that with triple net leased real estate, you know, most of that exposure, the taxes, the insurance, the expenses, the management fees would all get billed back to the tenants. 
And as opposed to renting to, you know, some guy that cuts grass, that's one paycheck away from not being able to pay his bills, you know, we were renting to larger companies or at least professionals that were less likely to move, especially in the retail space, because once your customers know where you are, you know, it's not very easy to move you know, your shop across the street. Um, and so that really, I think, was the aha moment for us as to using different classes of real estate for different reasons. And so uh, we bought our first mixed-use commercial building in Rice Village in Houston and then bought in very quick succession uh, three more buildings. And then it sort of started from there. So that was kind of the, uh, I guess, the, the, the sort of the aha moment, which probably was back in 2003, 2004. So that's when you started getting into retail as well, right? Correct. During this time. So did you did you uh, did you exit out of the multifamily? Were you holding on to that at the time? What what happened to that? No, we at the time we uh, we basically sold everything off. Uh, we ten thirty ones, one or two of the buildings, and um, at the time. I mean, it seems kind of almost humorous now, but at the time it was quite hard to sell apartment buildings. So, uh, you know, if I had that same portfolio today, it would be like I had Justin Bieber and uh, I don't know, the Kardashians sort of at my house, the phone would be ringing off the hook. But uh, at the time, yeah, it wasn't such a popular asset class. And so it didn't sell easily, let's put it that way, even though there were great, you know, locations and great assets. So uh, we completely got out of the multifamily space at, at that time and uh, sort of vowed, you know, not to do it again, as you'll find out later. Yeah, that you did it anyway. Fun. Yeah, you, did, you got back into yeah. it a little bit. But so, so we talked about some of the things you liked about retail. Uh, now, I was in the receiving end of that. I was a tenant through our pizza restaurants. I was a tenant. So I know exactly what you mean by this triple net thing, which means that the owner could pass along my portion of real estate taxes, insurance, common area maintenance, all these things. And I had actually pay for it, which I thought was really clever, right? So the only thing that the, the landlord really had to do was, I don't know, pay their mortgage off, right? Really is all they had to do. Well, you have to cash the check as well, right? Yeah, oh, yes, yeah, so you have to cash the check. So I really like that component. The thing that I didn't like as much, and you maybe can comment on this in the recession, because what happened is in the recession, a lot of uh, retail went dark, right? And so there was a lot of turnover. And I'm sure that must have put a lot of pressure on, on the retail centers as some businesses went out of business. So you're buying this stuff in 2003. What were you doing in the recession? What happened there? How did you guys do? Interesting story. So in the recession, real estate is, you know, about location, ultimately, especially commercial triple net lease real estate. Uh, so luckily, we were, you know, and we were in the arguably one of the best strongest markets in in Houston, if not in Texas, maybe if not in the country. And so uh, we did not see much in that space in our triple net lease portfolio. But I was at the time doing ground up construction on the side with spec houses, sort of more expensive spec houses in the sort of at the time, I guess they were a million five to $3 million, which, you know, in Houston is, you know, a reasonable price for a house. Um, and so the recession really didn't hit until later uh, in Houston. And it really came around in about three months, you know, it went from sort of hero to zero. And we had three houses complete. Uh, I think uh, the mortgages on those houses were like close to $40,000. The prices were dropping and dropping and dropping. All the banks were like screaming. You know, some of my tenants were like saying, hey, you know, can we not pay rent this month? Or it was a doom and gloom in the air for sure. 
by chance, I caught this show on, uh, I think it was NBC Nightline, about this guy called Odell Barnes. And uh, at the time, he was the foreclosure king of America. And he was flipping like 10,000 houses from his porch in one of the Carolinas uh, with no computer, no office, no nothing, no website, just anyhow. Uh, using some uh, of our skip trace software uh, from the apartment world, tracked one of his ex-wives down and um, anyhow flew down to see him. He invited us down there and cut a long story short, we uh, talked a lot about real estate. He was flipping lists of houses. It was crazy, crazy times. And um, we went up to a Hudson Marshall auction in Detroit, uh, which was a Dutch auction where they start at a certain price and it goes down. And I saw that houses were not selling $50 there. It was just amazing. So it kind of destroyed my whole ethos that there's always intrinsic value in real estate because I saw that there really isn't, uh, especially you know, in Detroit's instance when the, you know, the city is somewhat bankrupt and where the property taxes hadn't changed from a number of years prior where these you know, houses were still appraised for over $100,000 plus. Anyhow, cut long story short, uh, we decided not to buy anything in Detroit, but he had a list of four houses in Phoenix, and um, we bought these four houses for $78,000, sight unseen, and uh, decided that we should fly to Phoenix and check it out. And so I went on Craigslist, and I saw a, uh, an advert from a lady. She's had 500 houses for $50,000 or under for sale. So I call her up. I'm like, hey, we want to come to Phoenix. We want to see... Uh, some houses. She's like, well, how many do you want to see? I'm like, we want to see all of them. She's like, how long are you going to be? I'm like, we'll be there for a week to 10 days. So in a week to 10 days, we mapped it all out and we drove 500 houses. We put offers in on 340 of them and we ended up buying 50 houses. We paid an average of $27,000 a door and the average outstanding mortgage balance was $230,000. Insane. 10 cents on the dollar. Insane. Now there's an interesting article or a quote, and I can't quite quote it, so I'll paraphrase it. And this is written a long time ago, this book, uh, Donald Trump, The Art of the Deal, uh, which some of your listeners may have read. But anyhow, he has a, some comment in there that it's an amazing phenomenon with the American public that, you know, when, just trying to think of a company that's still in existence, you know, Macy's, when Macy's has a, a 60% off or a 70% off sale, people are camping out, you know, for days in front of the store so they can get their flat screen television for a few hundred dollars uh, cheaper. But in the real estate world, when real estate's on sale for 50, 60, 70, 80%, people are running for the exits. It's like a stampede. So we turned up in Phoenix, nobody was buying property. I'm like, this is crazy. So we re- literally had no competition. So we bought the 50 houses, we turned around, we owner financed it. We turned that million dollars into $3 million in like two and a half, three months. And that's kind of where it all started. And so um, it was almost kind of counterintuitive when you've got houses you can't sell in Houston and they're burning a hole in your pocket to then go out and buy, you know, 50, 60 houses more. But you've got to take opportunity when it comes to you. And it's all about market timing. And you've also got to learn, I think, to compartmentalize different pieces of your problems as it were or your business into different boxes because one thing doesn't necessarily drive another okay and so uh anyhow so we we did that and uh between i think 2008 9 to 2014 we bought around six or seven hundred houses and 
two to two and a half thousand apartments. So it was some crazy times, um, but basically just buying and selling that, you know, more as a trading type kind of situation. Didn't really want to own that type of asset class in my own portfolio. So it really became an operating business at that time. So this was more like a, I would say, a short-term hold slash flipping side of single family houses, yeah, apartments. Just a really, and, yeah, buying, buying in bulk and selling, selling off. And basically. the retail though was buy and hold. The retail was buy hold, and uh, you know, at that time, you know, I redirected my funds into you know making hay while the sun shines. Right? I mean, I've been around long enough to realize that this was, you know, potentially a once in a lifetime opportunity uh, to create wealth. Unfortunately, I didn't have you know enough liquid assets. You know, you can't plan for these kind of events. You know, it kind of built upon itself, um, and uh, I, I know of many people during that time that, you know, created fortunes. And, um, you know, unfortunately, we didn't create a fortune, but, uh, you know, still survived and, and, you know, ended out at the end of the day, you know, much better. And obviously, hindsight being 2020 had, you know, all of those properties being kept. Today, you know, we'd be, uh, I'd be in my mansion in uh, Beverly Hills uh, with my private jet out front, but uh, th- that wasn't quite the case. But still, it was a, you know, it was it was a good time, but it was a it was a real eye opener to see the devastation of value and the amount of money that banks lost and people lost and and everything else, and and how you know certain places in the country got you know really affected. Florida, you know, Arizona. Nevada, you know, some of these places were really, really hit, and it was definitely sad. Well, you were affected by it. You also took uh, took advantage of it as well. If you were to look back on your career, is there anything that you would have done differently? I think I would have set my goals higher. I feel like I've been blessed and very lucky to have had and to have seen and to maybe have taken action on opportunities uh, over the years, different opportunities. But I, I don't feel I necessarily push myself hard enough. I think as we, we grow older, you know, our risk tolerance changes. And um, I wish that I had, you know, been more engaged earlier and made more effort earlier and maybe taken more risk earlier. I may have been, you know, some people may think that what I've done has been fairly risky, but I still think I've been fairly defensive in my kind of investing strategy. And um, so I wish I'd maybe been a little bit more reckless is maybe not the right word, but more aggressive and done more uh, and worked a little harder because yeah, now I kind of see opportunities limitless. And I I really feel like I want to achieve more. I want to help more people. Uh, I want to do more. Yeah, time's ticking. (laughs) And time is ticking. What's left for you to do? So right now, I kind of evolved. So after the recession, I got back more into buying retail, uh, triple net leased assets. And um, I had not really been comfortable buying assets with other people or you know raising money for for assets syndicating assets but kind of realized that i really wanted to try and scale uh, my portfolio so about a year ago uh, we started uh, syndicating uh, larger hispanic shopping centers uh, when i took larger i'm talking 100,000 plus square feet predominantly because i have a big background in 
selling to the immigrant populace back in the Netherlands and also here to a lesser extent. You know, that they are the fastest growing demographic in the country, especially in markets like Houston in the South. Just the whole nature of how uh, Hispanic people typically shop, they like to touch feel, smell, you know, often they don't have bank accounts. So shopping on, you know, Amazon or online is, is, you know, not necessarily an option or not something that they're really drawn to. And so we've been buying uh, larger shopping centers, cash flowing shopping centers, so really buying cash flow with a light value add component and then bringing in investors that are looking for that sort of, you know, 20% a year, roughly, you know, IRR is what we kind of target. Um, so that's what we've been doing. And um, in the last year and a half, uh, we've bought about 650,000 square feet of retail. Um, so I'm looking to expand that platform. And then I'm still doing, you know, some other things, but not, not with investors. Or you do some fun things like the cap rate compression game, uh, multifamily yes. flips, since you kind of said you kind of went back there, but you're doing it in a very interesting way. Talk about that because I think it's kind of interesting for listeners, watchers to, to, to hear what you're doing there. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So, you know, I moved to, to California three years ago, uh, like I guess a lot of people on the West Coast or on the East Coast there in New York or whatever, you know, you kind of look at the prices and you're like, man, this just doesn't make sense. So then you're forced to kind of go to, I don't know, wherever. And, you know, I'm a big believer in go where you know. Um, you know, I like to invest in markets I understand and I know. I, I think that local knowledge is always superior. And, you know, often there's a reason that something hasn't sold and the out-of-town buyer, the out-of-state buyer or whatever uh, is always going to be at a disadvantage over the local local knowledge. And so uh, I like there must be a way to kind of make these four or five cap rate deals work. And so I kind of realized that I was maybe looking at it the wrong way. I don't think, well, depending on you, you know, obviously on your age and what you're trying to do, for me, a four or five percent uh, return does, does not work for a long-term hold. But there are plenty of people that will buy a four or five percent cap rate deal, uh, you know, especially in some of the wealthier uh, cities like LA, San Francisco, New York, you know, doctors or whatever that are looking for something that's kind of squeaky keen and ready to go. And so I kind of figured, I'm like, you know what, if I buy a deal, you know, if I'm buying product in a four cap market, then you've got to look at this in a different way. It's like if I can create $40,000 of value, I've just made a million dollars. And that's a lot easier than being in an eight cap market where you've got to make twice as much money to make the same amount of money, right? And so my philosophy is to have multiple buckets or multiple streams of income from multiple or from different asset classes in real estate. And so we, you know, we have the syndicated real estate, which you know, is typically a three to five year hold and it cash flows during that period of time. I have other commercial real estate, predominantly shopping centers that you know, I'll hold for 10, 12, 15 years, which cash flow. Uh, we do ground up construction, single family homes, spec building, which is a 12 to 18 month kind of process. And I was looking for some other shorter term ways to create, you know, l chunks of money, effectively lumps of cash. And so I realized that if I could, I could buy apartment buildings and we've focused on LA in non-rent controlled areas, although the California market is a bit in flux right now with rent control and other controls, et cetera. But I realized that I could buy a 10 unit building at a four cap and fix it up. And effectively, you know, if I'm adding $40,000, which is like $333 a month per unit, 
then I just made a million dollars. And, you know, I can get an over-the-counter uh, remodel permit for these units. Many of these units, are, are mo- or a lot of apartments in uh, LA have month-to-month tenancies. There are certain rules and regulations, uh, and there are ways as well to get, you know, to ask people to move uh, legally. Uh, and sometimes, you know, you have to pay a little bit of money to incentivize them to move. But um, basically, the business model is to buy smaller apartment buildings from 7 to 20, 25 units, renovate them typically kind of down to the studs, stick about 20 to $30,000 a door in them, and then turn around and sell them in, uh, retenant them, and then turn around and sell them in 12 to 18 months. So far, it's been pretty successful. Uh, we've achieved some, some record uh, sales prices, and we sold a building in Inglewood, uh, which is uh, pretty close to LAX, for people that don't know, $414,000 a door, uh, which was a, a record for, for Inglewood to date. So I kind of, you know, I see that as an opportunity, and, you know, you can do that with apartment buildings. You can also do it with uh, retail buildings. Anything where, you know, there's some value... Uh, you know, that is maybe not initially apparent. You're not interested really in what you're buying the property for at the time, whether it's a four cap return or whatever it might be. It's what it could be if you fix it and change the the dynamics of it. And in markets where there is, you know, a shortage of apartment units and also markets that typically have rent control, believe it or not, that usually helps force pricing up. So that's kind of a strategy that I'm employing as, you know, one of many and you know that still kind of keeps my fingers as it were in that in that multifamily space yeah that's interesting so what you're saying is if the cap rate is low then a small change in income has a disproportionate impact on the value i think what you're saying so these are kind of they're not cash flow plays they're actually a forced appreciation plays it's effectively a house flipping yeah but on a you know if you want to call it on a larger scale the nice thing about apartments is is obviously you take you know, something, you improve it significantly. So you're improving the asset, you're bettering if you want the neighborhood, uh, you're putting new people in. And then I guess when the rent roll is seasoned, you know, you're adding, you're not decreasing value, you're kind of adding value. Whereas if you are flipping houses, let's say it doesn't sell, then if you put somebody in there and they kind of trash it, you're going to have to spend more money and there's no it doesn't add value if it's not quote unquote brand new or newly remodeled. Whereas with an apartment building, even if it doesn't sell instantly, you still have the benefit of the rental income whilst you have it listed for sale. And you know, if the market should twist or change, then you know, obviously you've still got the rental income. But at the end of the day, that it to me it's a lower risk version of flipping houses or doing ground up construction. Um, so it's kind of you know something that we do a number of. I like to have two or three of those uh, deals on the go. And it's just another, you know, quote unquote, bucket of revenue. So it's interesting. I think what's what I find interesting about this is that you are not, I, I would say you're not, there's a lot to be said for to focus on one thing, right? People say, hey, if you're just focused on one thing long enough, you'll eventually become very, very successful versus doing a bunch of little things. Now, I'm not saying that you're all over the place. However, what I'm observing is that you are doing multiple strategies, multiple asset classes for different reasons. And you said earlier, it's really important that you know, what are you trying to do with real estate? And then using the most appropriate strategy and asset class to achieve that goal. Can you talk about the different categories of, of goals and then maybe one or two different strategies to kind of satisfy those? So I think, you know, you've really got to look at, obviously everybody's 
sort of goals are, are, are different, but I, I'm guessing most of your, you know, your listeners are looking to, you know, create a passive income flow, increase their net worth, uh, and hopefully, you know, have a retirement income stream ultimately from, you know, the years of building up a portfolio of real estate. So I think it really kind of boils down to, you know, what do you personally like uh, and what do you personally find interesting or, you know, what works for you personally? For me, you know, I travel a lot. We spend a lot of time in Europe. Obviously, I'm from England. Uh, we travel to Asia a lot. And I do have, I went to ADD, but I'm, I like to do lots of different things. And so we have our triple net portfolio. And that really is kind of the stuff that we're kind of keeping to hold for now. And then you've got to look at the way the market moves. And, you know, from time to time, the strategies change. But where is the opportunity to, you know, make money in quicker succession? You know, if you have a, an apartment building or, a, you know, a shopping center and it throws off, I don't know, $100,000 a year of, of income, if you want to go out and buy another one, you know, you're going to have to wait many, many years to, you know, get maybe a million dollars in cash to put down on the next one, right? Whereas if you can find a way to make a million dollars in a year from one thing quickly, then that allows you to build your passive portfolio quicker. And so that's really kind of, I guess it's, it's you even need a business that is bringing in cash that you can invest in real estate to increase that passive income flow because that's my goal. Or I need to, you know, as it were, trade in real estate. It's just a product, right? It's like, selling ice cream, you know, and when it's obviously hot outside, you're going to sell a lot of ice cream. But in the winter, you know, you better start selling hot dogs or soup because you're not going to sell much ice cream. And it's kind of with real estate is a little bit the same. It's kind of almost seasonal. The trends kind of go in different ways. So like, you know, the single family home market right now in certain parts of the country, you know, in certain asset classes is flooded, like the high end market in LA is flooded. The high-end condo market in New York is flooded. The you know, high-end condos in Miami are not selling right now. But you know, other things are. So you've really got to kind of move with the times and find where the opportunity is and be flexible enough and informed enough and not be stuck in a rut. You know, because I guess if you have a clock that's broke or broken you know, twice a day, um, it's going to tell the right time. But the rest of the time, it's going to be wrong. Right. So, you know, you, you better not be, you know, just right twice a day. You, you better kind of like, you know, keep moving or make sure the clock's working so you can take advantage as things change. So really, that I think is my main philosophy is obviously if you try and know everything, you know, about everything, you'll end up knowing everything about nothing. It's targeted. It's specific, you know, but at the end of the day, trading property is just a product it, you know it just happens to be real estate and so you know it doesn't need to get complicated whether it's a single family home or an apartment building or a shopping center or an office building or you know self storage or student housing you know all of the things that we still do from time to time it's just how much did it cost in money time and effort and then how much is it worth and how quickly can it get sold and then you know how much money can i make and where is my time and my money best deployed? And, you know, you've just got to keep, I guess, aware of the nuances in the market. But what I don't do is, going back to my earlier comment, go where you know. So I'm a big believer in, you know, I'm not all over the map. I'm all over the, the asset class map, but I'm in very specific markets that I feel like I understand and have in-depth knowledge yeah. in. And that way, I kind of feel like I mitigate any 
risk, as it were, yeah. to a certain extent. Adam, I always love jamming with you because you're a true entrepreneur. Uh, you're very intentional with what you do, but uh, but at the same time, you would love learning and doing things and doing exciting stuff, which is what I love. How Absolutely. can how can people, Adam, connect with you? I uh, keep a fairly low profile, um, but uh, you can reach me at Adam at Adam the Brit, T H E B R I T dot com. So Adam at Adam the Brit dot com. Uh, it's my email address. It's probably the best way to reach me. Be happy to talk to anybody uh, that might be interested in learning more about investing in uh, shopping center syndications and uh, yeah, anybody that has any, uh, any questions on any of the other things that we've talked about, happy to connect. Adam, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. I really enjoyed it and I uh, hope the uh, heat wave over there uh, cools down a little bit. We could do with a bit of heat here. It's been kind of cold, believe it or not, this year in California. But uh, yeah, great talking and uh, have uh, a really good uh, event next week in Dallas. I've, I've seen a lot about it. Unfortunately, won't be able to make it. Yeah, I hope that goes well for you. So what stuck out for me is that, number one, you have to be intentional with your real estate strategy, okay? Meaning that when I first started house flipping, I was not intentional. Well, my intention was misguided, shall we say. I, I just felt like I wanted to be a real estate investor, but that's not really what my goal was. My real like, goal was financial freedom. So I, I became a real estate investor, but it, there was, as you know, if, you guys, you, if you're doing single family house flipping or even landlording, it's a very active sport, right? So it didn't really satisfy what I wanted to do. And the reason for that is because I wasn't really clear what I wanted. And so in Adam's case, he's very clear on what he wants. There's a certain cash flow strategy, and then there's a, uh, there's a cash generation and wealth building strategy. And he really uses both. Here's the thing. I mean, you have to, you have, to have cash flow, right? You have to have money coming in every single month so you can pay your bills, okay? Now, but once you get to that point, you can start playing around, okay? Once you get financial freedom and you have your living expenses covering, maybe there's something extra. Hey, you can go on vacations, buy something nice you have now more options. Now, what do you do with those options? Well, you can continue doing that and just accumulating buy and hold property. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I advocate it. But my observation is that there are people who are then doing other things to complement that. They create chunks of things. For example, up ground up development. Fascinating. I don't do it. I think it's high risk, but only probably because I don't know much about it. But if you look at these projects, I mean, you can make millions of dollars in these ground up development projects if you know what, what you're doing. Then there's also the velocity of money. So there's an argument you made that you really should sell stuff as soon as the value is being made because at that point, or, or refines take money out because at that point, you have created most of the value. So here's what I mean. For example, let's say you're doing a five-year hold and within 18 months, you have uh, renovated everything, you stabilized the property and you've maximized the value, right? So it's true potential, you've, you've achieved it. And from that point on, you can't really force a lot more appreciation because your rents are already at market. The only way you can get high appreciation if, if the market rents naturally go up, that allows you to increase the value of that property. But you can't really force appreciation. So some people, what they will do is they, they will then refinance and take the money out and use that money and do another value add deal. Or they might even sell it. And this is kind of what Adam was doing with these low cap rate compression. This is kind of fascinating to me. So he's going into LA. He's buying stuff at a four cap. A small increase in NOI has a disproportionate effect on valuation. So he allows us to flip these apartment buildings, which he said less risk than a, than a house flip. Again, because you're less market sensitive, right? Now, yes, down market, the cap rates will go up. But in a down market, the residential 
single family houses will go down much further. So to him, it's a lower risk, essentially apartment flip. So he's doing that to generate chunks of cash. Now he's taking that chunks of cash and then he's investing in his long-term buy and hold strategy, which in his case is retail. Again, not my cup of tea, but if you listen to very carefully, uh, they're specializing on a particular kind of retail, the Hispanic demographic, which is a bit separated from the whole online Amazon shopping thing. Right? He's very intentional about it. And he's very careful to point out that he does not have shiny object ties. That he's very, very intentional, but also flexible, uh, number one. And the three-thirds thing he said is flexible, intentional, is to really be comfortable outside your comfort zone, right? Because when he started ground-up development, that's the first time he's done it. When he started flipping apartment houses, that's the first time he's done it. When he first got into retail, that's the first time he's done it. So you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's super, super important. So anyway, I really enjoy hanging out with Adam. It's just, he's just, has up to so many, so many cool and interesting things in his life. He's seen the goods, he's seen the bad, and it's just great to hang out with him. So I'll see if you can connect with him as well. Um, also, we recently had uh, Dealmaker Live, of course, very recently, and I was just so blown away with uh, the turnout. Oh, my, it was awesome, and the speakers were awesome. We had uh, It's just amazing. The energy uh, was just so amazing. And one of the things that I was really excited about is I had these, uh, these coins. I gave out uh, two kinds of coins, really. One is the first Dealmaker coin. It has an eagle on the front like this. And it's got a mountain uh, on the back. So the front is says financial freedom, right? Because our goal, my goal is to help people come financial freedom. And the back is a mountain. Uh, and the mountain says law of the first deal, right? I talk about that a lot. If you're watching this in video and holding up the coin right now, the back says law of the first deal. And it's got a mountain peak on the back. What that means is law of the first deal, done your first deal. You've achieved, you've been on your journey, you've struggled, you've wandered, you're at base camp and you're resting up, you're enjoying it. Maybe you're taking a shower, uh, having a meal and you look up well rested and you look at the peak, which is the ultimate destination, which is financial freedom, which is the eagle on the front. So we're giving that to everyone who feels they have been substantially influenced by what we do. And it could be the podcast or the book, or it could be some of our online programs like the Ultimate Guide or our mentoring programs. And so if you're one of those people, make sure you reach out to us and say, hey, your course really made a difference to me. You know, your book really made a difference to me. And you got to provide a video testimonial, right? That's really important. That's that's what I get out of. But also it then verifies that we actually, you know, indeed influenced you in a positive way. So these are these first dealmaker coins. I'm really, really excited about them. And the other one is the Freedom Hall of Fame coin. It's this one here. It's actually bigger, much bigger. And it has the eagle on the front, and it says financial freedom as well. But on the back, it has a compass rose on it. And it says significance and legacy. Because, and this is given to people who have quit their jobs or are financially free. And this is what they get. And we gave out a handful of these at Dealmaker Live as well. And uh, this is great. This is what it's about, financial freedom. But at that point, when you're financially free, the stakes are higher. Because now you're called to find your true north. That's what that compass rose is. Here's your true north. And your challenge now is to find out what is what kind of life of significance should you be leading and what is your legacy. And so that is the challenge for the Freedom Hall of Fame coin. So really, really excited about that. And I have observed 
that uh, out of, of most, many of these awards that we've given, not all of them, are from our mentoring students. And this is really cool. And I just did, a, did an audit here just the other day. And, and just, just this year alone, we've had uh, 13 deals closed from our students, totaling 962 units. And we have another four deals on our contract. And these are not deals that we're doing with Nighthawk. These are the people that are they're doing this to, by themselves or raising the money they're, or, or in some cases, they're joint venturing with each other as well. If you're interested in potentially becoming a mentoring student, check us out at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor, and you can schedule a free strategy session with us. It's not for everyone. Obviously, there's an investment involved, and you have to be coachable. The people who do the stuff that our full-time mentors tell them, they are literally 100% successful. It's just that simple. It just, it just works. And you're going to get to work with people who own several hundred units, who have quit their jobs, who have done what you have done. So I'm just so pumped about this stuff. Um, so if that's for you, check it out at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. All right, guys, hope you guys were inspired by today's episode with Adam DeBritt, and I will catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.